reading in the book of Daniel. We'd like to continue in that study. We'd like to go to chapter 3, Daniel chapter 3. <coughs> Let me read the first three verses of chapter 3. Uh, normally I would go and give you a little bit of preview or review of what we did the last couple weeks, but I'll save my voice from that and hope you, you can remember what we did the last two Sundays. But Daniel chapter 3, let me start with the first three verses. <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits. Now a cubit is about 18 inches, so this is about a foot and a half. And the breadth thereof six cubits, he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Before I go on too further, far, again, I've never been there. I'm basing this off some research I did from the historians and in geography, but this particular plain where it is evidently is a plain that rests between two mountain ranges. So it would have formed a natural amphitheater for people to come. And it could literally, I don't know if there was that many people around, but it literally could have housed hundreds of thousands of people. And if you look at this particular monument that was set up, uh, it would be six, 60 cubits high, which is 90 feet high, which is about the equivalent of an eight-story building. So think about an eight-story building sitting in a plane between land that is gradually going up. It could have been seen for a long ways away. And it could have been an amphitheater that held maybe 100,000 people. <clears throat> Uh, then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sat to gather together the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. <coughs> then the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Well, before we go on and get into this particular dedication service, I want to kind of give you a perspective. And uh, you knowing me being a math numbers type person, I was wondering how much gold would it take to build something like that? So what I did, I did some calculations, and I pretended, I thought, well, what did this thing look like? Was it round? Was it a totem pole? Or was it an obelisk? <clears throat> I don't know what it was. The Bible's not clear on it. So I went the most conservative route possible, and basically it's nine feet wide by 90 feet tall. So I considered a totem pole. And I did the calculations. How much gold would it take to make a totem pole eight stories high? That's a lot of gold. And all the calculations are there in the notes. And the recent price of gold was 18, 19 an ounce. So I figured it would, in today's dollars, it would take $201 billion to build that thing. Think of that. $201 billion in today's dollars to build something just to get a bunch of people to stare at. It's a lot of money. And as we go through this, we, <clears throat> I can't help but think, what would prompt Nebuchadnezzar to do that? And I really believe it had something to do with that image of the golden head where Nebuchadnezzar was supposed to be the head. I, I have some, some kind of speculation that somehow that influenced him to do that. So, okay, let's, let's get the situation. 
This is nothing more than a power play by Nebuchadnezzar for power and control. And he builds this totem pole or this obelisk out of pure gold that would have sparkled in the sunshine that people could see for miles around in between two gradual rising mountain ranges in a plain where it could be seen for a long ways away. And then he gathered the people and he got everybody that was a who's who. From the lowliest police officer to mayors to governors to senators to judges to council people, everybody possible, treasurers and sheriffs, any kind of ruler whatsoever, and he got them all around. Talking about a muscle power play to get and conform and to unify a group of people, that's what he did. So that's number one. <clears throat> okay? Let's keep on reading. I'm still in Daniel 3. Let me start reading at verse 4. <clears throat> then an herald cried aloud, <coughs> To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And whoso falleth not down and worship shall the same hour be cast in the midst of a burning fiery furnace. Wow. Verse 7, therefore at that time when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. <coughs> so we, we, we got this scene. What a control power play Nebuchadnezzar has if you don't. Now, now just, just think of the peer pressure of having 100,000 people being surrounded with everybody that's a who's who and everybody bows to that and you're not the guy that bows down. You're going to stand up and stand out. Amen? And Nebuchadnezzar is doing everything in his power to try to manipulate these people, to control them, to show his influence. And if you don't do it, you're going to die. You're going to die right away. And I don't know, this is my imagination. I kind of I figure that <clears throat> they say do it the same day. I'm kind of wondering if there's this furnace and you can see the smoke going off somewhere in the distance. So not only can they see the golden obelisk or totem pole, but in the distance they see the fire going up from the furnace. Okay, you going to bow and worship this thing or not? And that's what he did. Okay. Another thing... I noticed, though, is uh, he used music. Music is a very effective tool to increase emotion and decrease objectivity. Now, we sing our songs, and I hope you get into the, the, the music. I really do. But you know what I hope more? I hope you pay attention to the words. Because we sing words on purpose. Simply to get music going just to get you tapping and waving that's good for a Friday night but that's not the only thing that's good for Sunday morning you got it? Okay. I hope we tap and we can clap our hands I, I, I hope that's okay if we do that during worship but just as long as we know what we're worshiping 
So a lot of times mucusic is used to create emotion and to reduce thinking and reasoning. No, we want to keep the two together when we do use music. Okay? And the last thing is the fear. All right? Notice the fear factor. <clears throat> Verse 8. Well, we're still continuing. Everything, I, everything I'm going to read here is in uh, uh, Daniel chapter 3, unless otherwise stated. <clears throat> Verse 8. Wherefore at that time certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. You know what these guys are? They're the tattletales. That's what we called them when we were in grade school. And the tattletales, <clears throat> they spake and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worship it, that he should be cast in the midst of a burning fiery furnace. So, so what happens is, is, is the tattletales quote back to Nebuchadnezzar his decree. Now, now, now think about this for a second. Do you remember what happened in chapter 1? In chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar made a decree and he said, I want this dream interpreted and if my dream does not get interpreted, I'm going to kill y'all. And the Chaldeans ignored the king's decree and they tried to circumvent it. And this time around, they're quoting the degree, decree. You notice the difference? Because the first time they were guilty and the second time they thought they were in safe standing. And I just find it interesting that the people, the very people that bailed them out of being executed in chapter 1 are the people that are tattling on their deliverers from chapter 1. they got a short memory. And notice when the accusation is made, three things. They state the nationality, they state their office, and then they state the offense. You got it? There are certain Jews, there's the nationality, whom thou hast said over the affairs, the ones you promoted, that are our bosses, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not regarded thee, or served not thy gods, nor worshipped the gold image which thou hast set up. These guys, they're thumbing their nose at you. It's one of the things we found out that they were very respectful young men. That's one thing that you cannot accuse them of. Now, not bound down to the gold image, guilty. Guilty is charged. Okay? So that's what I wanted to, 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 to say from there. <clears throat> See, what happened is in this particular passage is <clears throat> you ever hear of pushing someone's hot buttons, right? My wife's got hot buttons. And you know what? I've got hot buttons too. And if you study your wife and if you study your husband, you're going to look and you're going to know those are their hot buttons and they're going to stay away. Well, Nebuchadnezzar had some hot buttons and you know what these Chaldeans do? They're going to mash every single one of them, right? What is his hot buttons? 
he, he, fury and rage and anger. You got a lot of pride there too. And they come walking in there and they know what he's going to get fired up at and that's exactly the buttons they push. Okay, and that's what they're doing right here. Okay, let's go to verse 13. <coughs> then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, surprise, surprise, right? Commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Now, this is something Brother Andrew has been requesting ever since we started the book of Daniel. So I'm going to take some time out right here. It turns out that when we first read in chapter 1 and we read about Daniel and his three friends, that the first thing Nebuchadnezzar did was he changed their names, right? He changed their names. And he changed their Hebrew names into uh, Babylonian names. And I want to give you the interpretations of each of these names, okay? I find it interesting (coughs) because... You can change a person's name and you can call them what you want, but you can't change their heart. Got it? Okay. The first one, I got it written down here. Hananiah means Jehovah is gracious. Okay? That was his Hebrew name. He changed it to Shadrach, which means Accu inspires. Okay? That would be like coming here and your name was Jesus saves, and I would change it to Lucifer saves. Got it? I don't mean to be disrespectful. I'm just trying to explain what they changed the names to. The second man was Michel. His name in Hebrew means, who is like God? It was changed to Meshach, which means belonging to AQ. That would be like, who is Jesus? Versus, I belong to Satan. You got it? Azariah in Hebrew means Jehovah helps. And Abednego means servant of Nebo. In other words, instead of I serve God, I serve the devil. Okay? Daniel's name in Hebrew means my God is judge. Belteshazzar was the name he was given, means Baal will protect. Okay, so here are these four Jewish boys going around, and they've got names, AQ Aspires, I belong to AQ, servant of Nebo, and Baal will protect. And they don't believe a bit, bit, second of it, right? They're still worshiping the Lord. Got it? I find it really interesting. <clears throat> well, we'll talk about this later on. After we go through this trial, after we go through this deliverance, after we go through Nebuchadnezzar's conversion, I was wondering, why didn't Nebuchadnezzar change his name back? Right? Well, let's, let's kind of put that one on hold for later on at the end of the message. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay, so let me go back to uh, Daniel 3. Let me start reading at verse 13. And I'm so sorry. My volume's got a limit, and I'm trying to stay just below that limit so I can make it through this sermon. Then Nebu- oh, we read 13, 14. Nebuchadnezzar spake unto them, Is it true? O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up. Now if ye be ready 
that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, and the dulcimer, <coughs> and all kinds of music, ye shall fall down and worship the image which I have made. Well, well. In other words, if you, I'm going to give you a second chance. Now, I want you to notice that Nebuchadnezzar is going through a subtle change. When we read about him in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's very harsh. And all of a sudden in chapter 3, I say, because these three boys have gotten a little bit of respect in his eyes. And instead of just giving the decree to execute him, he calls him and he asks him to come back. And he asks him in person, is this true? And then he said, well, okay. I'm going to give you a second chance. We're going to play this music. And if you bow down, everything's going to be okay. But if you don't, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. Okay? You know, you know his conversion kind of reminds me of a man named Nicodemus in the New Testament in the book of John. Do you remember Nicodemus was a real big shot Jewish Pharisee? And Jesus was preaching and all the Pharisees were listening to Nick or to Jesus preach. And Nicodemus heard him. And the first time he heard him, he goes, wow, that sounds different. And he goes to Jesus by night. That's in John 3. And then he encounters Jesus and he's still a little bit back offish. And then we see Nicodemus pop up again about John 7 and the Jews are talking about Jesus and he actually jumps up and he defends him just a little bit. And then by the time we get to John chapter 18, Nicodemus hears that Jesus is dead and he says, where's the body? I'm going to go get it. Do you see his faith building, 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 slowly but surely? Well, Nicodemus is going to build a little bit slowly too. He still doesn't have everything right. See, the first time <coughs> he hears about these Jewish boys in chapter 1, he learns and he says, wow, these people that came from the Jehovah of Israel, they're pretty impressive. And then in chapter 2, he hears Daniel interpret it, and he says, wow, your God is a God of visions and dreams and can interpret but Nebuchadnezzar is still of the mind where he is polytheistic. He believes in many gods. And he's simply gone from the place where he's got all these gods. And he says, you know what? In chapter 2, I can insert yours in here and he can be another one of these gods. You got it? So he's slowly coming around. When he's chapter 3, he's coming a little slowly. You can tell by building this image, he still doesn't get it. And this, this is just another conversion process in the process of Nebu God working on Nebuchadnezzar in this particular case. <clears throat> so with that being said, let me read verse 15. <coughs> I read most of it. He says, now, now if, if the music comes again, everything will be okay. But if ye will not worship, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar's still got a me problem. He still thinks he's right up. The, he's got all these gods and he's got him plugged right in the middle. And I'm not sure he's got himself above all these other gods. 
And all of a sudden, here comes these three young men. And again, everybody asks, where was Daniel? And the answer is, I don't know. But I'm pretty sure he was out of town. Okay? That's my guess. He just was out of town. Okay? But here we are. Okay, let's keep on going. Let's go to verse 16 now. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee this in this matter. They're, they're still showing respect. In other words, he just said, listen, either you bow down to me, I'm going to kill you. And they said, yes, sir. The guy that offered, I don't think I'd put the word sir at them under my yes. But they said, yes, sir. they're sure still showing respect. <clears throat> if it be so, our God who we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of the hand of O king but if not be it known unto thee O king that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image now remember the charge was threefold they regard you not they serve not your gods and they won't worship your image and they said they didn't say anything about you we'll respect you sir but we cannot worship your gods, nor can we bow down to this piece of gold. Number two and three, we're guilty. Number one, we're not. And we'll still show you respect. But number two and three, we can't do that. <clears throat> now I've got another verse. This is not in here. I want to, I want to read this to you. This can be found in 1 Peter 1.7. That the trial of your faith, tried with fire be to the praise and honor and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to talk to you about the principle of going through a fire just for a second. Think about, here I've got on my hand here, I've got a simple wedding band and I assume that there's some gold in here. And I don't know what carrot is and I don't know what it is. I know it's pretty hard. Okay, if it's pure gold, it bends really easy, and every time you move your hand, you'd smash it, and it would pinch your finger. So th this is not pure gold, okay? <clears throat> pure gold is too soft to be of any kind of jewelry like this. But if I was to send this through a fire, what would happen is the stuff that wasn't pure gold would burn, and the only thing that would be left would be a puddle of real gold. Got it? Well, what the verse says here in 1 Peter 1, 7 is the purging of us. A lot less will be burned if it's pure gold when it goes through the fire. In other words, the more pure it is on the front end, the least change the fire will do to it. And when I look at these three men, even though their purging is a literal trial, the purer their faith is on the front end, the less burning there will be going through it. So as they're being approached by the king, they're telling him, Nebuchadnezzar, I don't know if God's going to deliver me from this trial or not. He has the ability to do it, but I don't know if he's going to do it. But you know what? I trust him so much that if he chooses not to, and he says, now is the time you need to be with me in heaven, we're ready to go. You got that? So the faith on the front, see, the trials are not designed to give you faith. Got it? I hope you have the faith before the trial. What the trial is designed to do is to get rid of all the excess. 
You got it? All right, so let's go and keep on reading here. Verse 17. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. If it's his will, he can deliver us. But if not, be it unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy God, nor worship that golden image that thou hast set up. Anyone guess what Nebuchadnezzar's response are going to be? Remember what his hot buttons are? Fury and anger, right? So let's go to verse 19. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. See, I really believe from their encounter in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he had gained some respect for these three Jewish boys. I think that's why he didn't ask them right off, is this true? He actually went and wanted a first-hand account. I think that's why he gave him a second chance. And he says, all of a sudden now, all that history is gone, and he's mad. His visage has changed. The way he looks at him is different. He got a little bit of respect for them before. And he commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it want to be heated. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them in the burning fiery furnace. (coughs) But these men were bound in their coats, in their hosen, and in their hats, and their other garments, and were cast in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. This is my favorite part. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now again, one of the things that Nebuchadnezzar is infamous for in these early chapters is his anger. And he got to the point is because he was so impulsive, he says, heat this thing up. It was made so hot that when it was time to throw these men in there, that the men, his mighty men, his loyal, honorable servants, his valuable soldiers were killed. And they tossed them in there. And we're going to find out what happens to the three, but we know what happens to the mighty men. They chose to be faithful. They chose to obey their God. You know what the problem is? They picked the wrong God. Amen? Okay. Verse 23. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astonished, that means astonished, and rose up in haste, and spake and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound to the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. Listen, I want to share something with you. When people from the outside are looking at you, Christian, and you're going through a trial, and I don't care if that trial is something medical, I don't think, care if it's something economical, I don't care if it's something governmental. Once you go through that trial, the non-Christians are always going to double back and take a peek at you. They want to know how you respond. It happens every single time. Right? 
they, they want to see if there's any truth to your walk. Keep that in mind. Don't fall apart like everybody else. That's your testimony. Okay? He said, you know, because he doubled back. He wanted to take a peek. And I don't think he just wanted to see the gory details of a corpse being burned up. He already saw that with his mighty men. But he went back and he took a peek. And he's looking and he's seeing four men walk around in the furnace. Wait a second, we only threw three people in. Where did that fourth guy come from? And where did he go? We're going to ask that question in a second. Verse 25, And answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. <laughs> you know what's the most amazing thing to me? It's not that there was a fourth person in there. It's not that these three weren't killed. How did Nebuchadnezzar know this guy looked like the Son of God? How did he know that? Is, is the Son of God so glorious that even the non-elect can recognize him? I know the devils can quake at God. Remember how many times the devil says, Thou art the Christ, have mercy on us. This is not our time. Is that what's going on here? How did he know? Did God speak to him in that moment? Or had God been working and slowly he's been going through this conversion process? Let's keep on going and see if we can answer that in a little bit. Now notice it says the fourth is like the Son of God. Later on, it, this person is going to be called an angel. And people are always asking, is this, this really the Son of God or was it an angel? And actually, Brandon asked me that just before. My answer was, I don't think it matters. What matters is, God was either next to him or he sent somebody next to him to comfort them in their time of need, exactly what they needed, and they got their deliverance. That's what our concentration is here. <coughs> so from the language in Daniel 3, I don't think he can prove either one and not look foolish. I really do believe that. Because when you look at the two counts of it, one has the word like and the next one says ain't. So whatever way you go, I'll say that sounds reasonable. Okay? Not definitive, but reasonable. Got it? Verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace. I bet you he didn't get too close. And spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know what? If I was him, I'd be calling Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I think those are the names I'd be using. But that's, those are the names he used. Ye servants of the Most High God. How did he know that? I think he kind of was pondering a little bit. But again, I think in his mind, his mind was full of polytheism. In, in, in terms, he was thinking there's many gods. And, and, and during the time of Daniel interpreting the dream in chapter 2, he just simply had all these gods up here, and he just inserted Jehovah God in the middle. And all of a sudden, he's going through this process, and he says, you know what? In his mind, I think Jehovah God just got a promotion. So he is no longer in the midst of all these, and he takes it and he moves it up. God, I'm thinking. 
We still have to go through chapter 4. Conversion doesn't happen like this. It's slowly happening with Nebuchadnezzar through these chapters. He's figuring things out. And I don't dare want to say he's a slow learner because I know I'm a slow learner. <clears throat> Did Nebuchadnezzar... <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come forth and come thither. In other words, you now have my permission to exit the fire. Isn't that silly? Okay, come on. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth of the midst of the fire. And the princes and the governors and the captains and the king's counselors being gathered together saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was a hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire passed on them. I find it amazing. <clears throat> God's power is so great that not only did he save the men, he saved the clothing. And you know the old thing. What's the only thing that got burned? The ropes that bound them. Everything else was fine. Got it? So when that group of three went through the trial, it was mostly gold, and they came out pure gold. Right? When we go through, I hope we are mostly gold. And the little bit of stuff is those ropes that bind us. That's what we get purged from after we go through the trial. I pray that's the case. <clears throat> Verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him. Okay, now I want you to notice this. In the earlier verse, he said, this is like the Son of God. Over here, he's calling it his angel. I asked the same question. What, where did Nebuchadnezzar learn anything about angels? How did he know about angels? Did God give that to him? But my point is, Nebuchadnezzar does not focus on the fourth man nor does he focus on the angel. You know what he focuses on? He focuses on their trust in God. And whatever God uses as the means to deliver, could be an ocean or a Red Sea that divides, it could be the sound of hoofprints, it could be hail. He uses all kinds of means to conquer our enemies. But what's more important is the faith in the God that does deliver us. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar focuses on. And he says this. He says, Who hath sent his angel, who delivered his servants that trusted in him. I'm impressed with your faith. I did everything in my power to try to bully you away from your faith in God. I used peer pressure. I used all the who's who. I threatened you with death. I actually bound you, gave you a second chance, even tried to jazz you up with music. 
and throw you into that fire and you were faithful for the whole and your God delivered you and you trusted him before, during, and after. Wow, that's some kind of faith. So much so, he says, you have changed the king's word. I don't know, this might have been the first time in Nebuchadnezzar's entire lifetime where he gave a decree and he actually changed it. He said, you actually changed my command. I made a decree. Anyone that doesn't bow down is going to get burned. And all of a sudden, that law is going out the window. Isn't that a good thing? Yes. And yield their bodies that they may not serve or worship any god except their own. Here's his decree. Now, my point is, he still hasn't arrived. He's still got a little ways to go. But isn't that all of us in our conversion experience? Right? Therefore, I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses be made into a dunghill. (coughs) Excuse me. We've heard that mantra before, haven't we? He's a king of cutting in pieces and making your houses a dunghill. Right? A public toilet? Sounds gross, but that's what it comes out of his mouth all the time. Because there is no other God that can deliver it after this sort. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And I, I still have to smile at God. Here's these tattletales. And they wanted these guys killed so they can arise and take their places. And guess what happens? They get promoted even higher. Isn't that something? God's got a sense of humor, doesn't he? Okay, let's look at some concluding comments. I want to, uh, to go through these things. Number one, <coughs> I want to talk about Nebuchadnezzar <coughs> and his evolution. In chapter one, Nebuchadnezzar tried to create a culture of unity and dependency. That's what he was trying to indoctrinate these teenagers. In chapter 2, he found that unity and dependency frustrated him. In other words, when he tried to get everybody to think the same way, he found out in chapter 2 that have everybody thinking the same way didn't get him the answers he wanted. He wants someone that didn't think like everybody. And then in chapter 3, he tried to create a culture of fear and compliancy. And he found out that that didn't work either. Do you think Nebuchadnezzar's power and control evolved further? After chapter 3? And the answer is, yeah, we still have to go through chapter 4. God's not done working and manipulating with Nebuchadnezzar. But he's closer now than he was at the beginning of chapter 1, isn't he? But he still has some way to go. Number 2, let's look at his management style. In chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar trained new managers. Existing managers feared death. Okay? Think about that. Do you remember in chapter 1 where he had these young people and he tried to indoctrinate them and assimilate them into a culture? And they said, well, we want to eat something different. Do you remember what the princess said? The princess said, no, you can't do that. You can't do that because if, if, if I come and you guys look a little bit weaker than everybody, he's going to kill me. I mean, he still was one of intimidation and death. That was his bottom line. I'm going to kill you if you don't comply. If I don't get results, I'm going to kill you. In chapter 2, he promoted the producers and executed the non-producers. 
In chapter 3, he demanded conformance and incinerated nonconformists. Do you think Nebuchadnezzar's power issues continued or did they evolve? Well, let's find out in future chapters. And then finally, three, his conversion was a process. In chapter one, he learned respect for Judah's people. In chapter two, he learned respect for Judah's God. But he still had him just one of a bunch of gods. In chapter three, he learned respect for a monotheistic God. He learned respect for people that only have one God. Does that mean he was there? Not yet. But he's getting there. Okay. At this point, I'm going to ask you to do one thing. Do you remember when Moses approached Pharaoh? And Pharaoh saw all these miracles. Now I want you to consider that in parallel when Daniel faced Nebuchadnezzar. Got it? What happened when Moses faced Pharaoh? Pharaoh never changed, no way, no how. Look at Daniel facing Nebuchadnezzar. He's making adjustments. At the end of chapter 3, he still has a ways to go. My friends, conversion doesn't happen like this. Regeneration happens like this, but conversion does not happen like this. You got it? I call this the book of Daniel. But these first four or five chapters, I call it the book of Nebuchadnezzar. I think he's a fascinating character as I look at his life. Now ultimately we'll continue on. Nebuchadnezzar's going to pass and we're going to go. There'll be future kings and there'll be future kingdoms. I get all that. But right now, I'm just fascinated by this man named Nebuchadnezzar that's just had this ultimate power. And any time he gets away, he pits this brat fit and he kills everybody around him. And slowly he's starting to change. He's starting to change. And it takes a magnificent God of heaven to do that. So, I've titled this message called Fireproof. You know, the only thing that's fireproof is a piece of pure gold. If there's blemishes in there, if there's additional metals in there, if there's dross in there, when you go through the fire, that's not fireproof. The gold is fireproof. So my question is, is where's your faith? I pray your faith is fireproof. The trial is not what makes you fireproof. Trier proves that it's fireproof. Amen? All right. With that being said, let's close. Thank you for your attention.